Hi, this is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast. This weekend, we are offering four conversations and a full extrasode from Season 3, Episode 16, our discussion on what data modeling can tell us about drug and diagnostic development in patient treatment. The extrasode is on MRE and hepatogram and their place in clinical treatment of patients today. This conversation picks up by considering whether FIB4, which is fast and inexpensive, is an appropriate test to track fast progression and some of these other issues. The consensus is that while FIB4 may be an appropriate initial rule-out kind of test, its flaws render it marginal to useless for these kinds of questions. After looking at a couple of other situations where modeling might provide value, the conversation ends with two points of agreement. Modeling should be able to prove that early intervention and liver-related lifestyle issues provides an economic benefit, and that advances in NITs are creating a situation where over time we can improve our models still further and improve patient treatment as well. Epidemiology and disease modeling have much to teach us about the impact of NAFL and NASH today, how that impact will change over time, and where we all should focus our efforts. These lessons are vitally important. So sit back, listen, enjoy, learn, and when you're done, join the dialogue on our LinkedIn and Facebook discussion groups. In a disease with a 20% spontaneous regression rate, tracking is going to be confounded by the reality that this disease is not a linear progression, not even a arc progression, but more of a wave progression. So the challenge, I think, would be to figure out what would be a strategy or frequency for diagnostics that would allow you to certify whether, in fact, this was a patient at high medical and economic risk in the short term or not without testing everybody way more often than you can economically afford to or the patient's willing to be tested. Um, and the only thing that comes up with that that is, Louise made the point about repeated FIB4. From what I know, I'm not sure that if that was the goal, FIB4 is the test I would want to repeat. I'm not sure exactly what it is, but I'm pretty sure that's not it, right? Because you want something with decent positive predictive ability. Alina Allen. FIB4 is doomed to increase, right? Because patients get older. That's that's a, <laughs> that's an absolute truth. So yeah, we, we need better markers. And I would advocate that we need different uh, databases rather than registries and tertiary cares or clinical trials, because those are highly biased towards a more severe spectrum of disease and likely to overestimate outcomes. So if we draw conclusions from those populations or data sets and apply them to the large population, they're going to overestimate and then goes back to the economic model. We're going to spend a lot of money to test and treat people who don't need to. Chris Estes. Yeah, I mean, we see this in a lot of disease modeling as people consider the cost of the therapy, but there can be significant substantial costs in screening and then the further diagnostic testing. Any any economic analysis really needs to fully capture the cost of the diagnostics and screening program. And at every step, you're also losing patients. So you might screen patients that never come back, even if they are testing, you know, positive. You know, you also have to keep, keep track of how many patients are lost along the way. In terms of modeling, therapeutic compound, if we use heart disease medication, um, say, you know, cholesterol like a statin. We also keep, have to keep track of, you know, compliance persistence with a medication. So we'd expect probably around 50% of patients would stop taking a medication within three years, just based on, you know, data from other disease areas. So there's a lot of things that kind of go into cost. And we also have to consider indirect cost. And this is going, this has to do with lost work productivity. How many years live? This is, is using the World Health Organization disability adjusted life year template, where we look at how many, how many years have lived with disability and how many years of life are lost due to stage disease and assigning an economic value to those is that you're going to have greater indirect costs um, when someone develops disease in younger or middle age versus advanced age, as we kind of discussed later, where someone that's first diagnosed with NASH for advanced stages may not progress. And if the indirect economic burden is lower at that advanced stage. Chris, what's the difference in three-year 
persistence of therapy based on things like side effect levels, dose form, dose frequency. People are, you know, they're told to take a drug, you know, every day by their doctor. There's just going to be a certain natural fall off regardless of side effects or efficacy. People are just going to stop taking the product. But, you know, if the side effect profile is worse, um, more adverse events or potentially less efficacy, they're not seeing any impact in terms of the you know, non-invasive measures. You know, you expect even less compliance and persistence over time. So if statins are 50% for three years, do you have a number of persistence number for a disease, say, with significant level of symptomatic side effects? I don't have that number off the top of my head, but I, you know, I would expect that to be lower. I mean, statins do have, for a number of portion of patients, do have you know, significant side effects, but I expect it to be even lower than 50%. And that, that's in the U.S., so other countries with different healthcare systems may, may have much better compliance persistence. Um, so it also has to do with the healthcare system itself. You know, in the U.S., we don't have problems, issues with health insurance, issues with following up with patients that may not exist in other countries. Jörn Schattenberg. I think I agree with that. There's regular physician visitors that reinforce Forced the concept of this medical treatment. It should be much higher for most patients I'm seeing in clinics. And of course, not having to struggle with insurance aspects uh, in Europe, it's probably higher. So we're getting towards the bottom of our hour. Um, I want to know if anybody has any more questions for Chris, and then I've got a two-part closing question we can spend a little bit of time with. Well, I guess one question could be, Chris, uh, and we've discussed this a little bit, pharma, pharmacotherapeutics, but the other uh, spectrum is the prevention measures, of course. And um, that goes into the models you said you, you calculated for patients regressing. But have you done something like um, spending money on schools or like New York has done banning certain cup sizes? Is this a, a meaningful, is this a preventive measure you could meaningful model in one of your equations there? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So we look at how is the future burden going to change if we prevent childhood overweight and obesity. Now, the challenge with that in terms of policymaking is that the impact is going to be potentially decades later. And, you know, policymakers, they're concerned about the next quarter or the next year budget. They're not think necessarily thinking 20, 30 years in the future, what is the burden of liver disease going to be based on what's happening among young adults today? So it's kind of a short sightedness. We're not considering the policymakers are not thinking about that enough. The best intervention would just be to present disease to begin with. But again, it's the time frame that makes it challenging. Louise Campbell. Chris just said it it's all about prevention. The data there gives us the evidence to be able to put in prevention, which is a lot cheaper, but we don't use that evidence. And that's the one thing I'd love to see reversed. Let's model, let's put in the care packages, let's put in the right strategies. It's expensive to start with, but it reaps its rewards on any modelling that I'm aware of as you go down that timeline. And that starts early with schools. We've got a sugar tax in this country, obviously, for children under the age of 16, I think it is, can't buy, or they pay extra additional on drinks to try and change that, uh, which seems to be working. So it's all about keeping your liver healthy. But you've got to know your liver's condition. But we don't do that as part of anybody's health screening at any stage, apart from uh, a liver function test, which isn't the most accurate thing in a, an organ that regenerates. <laughs> Well, you know, my swear jar is anybody uses the phrase liver function test to describe ASTA, ALT owes me $20 for exactly that reason. I feel a lot wealthier, Louise. Now I know that you're going to be in Barcelona. I know who's paying for my first drink or my breakfast or something because you, you owe me out of the swear jar. Okay. You actually teed up my closing question, which is part of it. One is, what is the best place we can use the data that we have better? And the second is, what data that feels to you like it's within the realm of what Chris or someone who does what Chris does can produce, do you think would help most around the either drug or diagnostic development issues? I'm going to jump in on that because thinking about what you're saying there, I think 
importance of the data that Chris and other modelers do is it allows us to potentially develop comorbidity pathways. And it's something that's not currently being developed. We're all siloed. And we talk about metabolic disease. We've talked about it on this episode, but we still don't have endocrinology assessing liver disease. We still don't have obesity medicine assessing for liver disease. We still don't have any bariatric medicine assessing for liver disease. So we're still very, very separate. But using the strength of that data to try again to say we can all cut costs and use that money to finance and fund some of the investigations that we want to help people and their families live longer, better, healthier lives. The data's there. We just need to restructure our thinking to use it better. Restructure thinking and restructure data sets. And I think it'll be the day that I'm able to hand off uh, something to Chris and say, you know, here's a a population-based study screening for liver disease using an advanced technology. And there are some ultrasound-based or transit elastography-based ones on the way in Europe. So this is great. On the other hand of the spectrum, advanced uh, EU and uh, US consortium nimble litmus generating lots of data and it'd be very exciting to see how you would tackle that data to build them into your algorithm and really give you better grounds to then model uh, future risks and uh, I think that's urgently needed. Very well said I agree compared to maybe a decade ago where we anchored everything on what the biopsy told us nowadays we're so much better positioned by having multiple layers of testing and assessment of liver disease which is a big improvement I think where we need to go forward is collecting data, not again, not specifically related to the liver events, but the comorbidity-related outcomes that we talked uh, before, because everything is a competing risk. If you don't have the competing risks, you can do accurate modeling for liver events. We basically need to continue to collect data. We need to create these large databases that have longitudinal follow-up that's significant. I wouldn't base modeling on or outcomes on one to two years of follow-up. There are several papers on that, and we should strive to wait a bit more patient to collect data that can actually be put into a big pile to be churned and modeled for some meaningful results. Yeah, these are some really good points is that that's going to be the path forward to you know developing the most accurate models is having these non-invasive measures in normal general populations um, that look at longitudinally long-term, what is the true rate of disease progression and how that varies between individuals based on risk factors. And then also in terms of cost effectiveness and um, especially cost effectiveness is this issue of comorbidities, what is going to be the change in these other comorbidities for any type of NAFL or NASH intervention and understanding that, understanding the burden of comorbidity and how they might be reduced as a result of an intervention would be you know, very compelling in terms of showing cost effectiveness. Yeah, all, all great points. And as I'm listening, one of the things I'm struck by is the difference between where I come from and where we are now, which is that marketing stats are future-oriented and highly probabilistic because fundamentally what you're trying to figure out is the the probability that investment will pay off, whereas this needs to be a lot better nailed down and a lot more solid. And going back to the point that I think Alina might have made first, or or you, Chris, the idea that we're doing one or two year and treating that like it's a time continuum for this disease virtually means that not only are the medical stats going to be confounded, but the marketing stats are going to be confounded because nobody can do decent future prediction. So I think one of the good things that will either come out of the consortia or thinking about it differently is we will get smarter about how 
try to use prior probabilities and those things to decide where we can and where we can't make sensible bets about investment. Because if we've got to wait for a whole bunch of 10-year data to roll in that we're only starting to collect now, Louise asked this question last week in a very different context. Like, what can we, if, if, if she asked Naeem, well, if we've got to start long-term studies for adolescents to know what to do with them, we're giving up on a whole generation of adolescents. Her point was, therefore, we have to do better. I, I think this is another one of those, which is that accepting limitations of the data we've got, we've got to start to think about commercially how to make better investment decisions. Because so far, the history has not been good. It's why so much of Big Pharma has backed out. We just have to figure out how to do that better. And I take the point that goes, we don't have the data you would ideally have to do that. Can I just ask, just, just while you're all talking there, do we have an opportunity in the context that a lot of nations are targeting pre-diabetes? to put them on pathways. We've just, in January, got a pre-diabetic pathway and it puts them into monitoring. But to the best of my knowledge, not one of these pathways are monitoring FibroScan, for example, or doing non-invasives. But we must be able to link into that data to look at, we know that you can reverse diabetes and send it into remission, but it's liver fat and pancreatic fat you have to reduce. So improving the liver condition, is that a way to prove cost-effectiveness? in this population, if we can stop people becoming diabetic by watching and using liver parameters as the biggest change, is that a way to set? Because diabetes is massively expensive. So that's a program that's certainly going on in this country, and I'm sure it's going on in most West developed and Western world to target prevention of diabetes. So do we need to link into those databases? Do we need to get some of that information and look at the liver, the ELFs, the FID4s, any of the markers, the NIST4, any of the ones that we can do to see whether or not we can generate that data? I think it'll be very compelling in terms of cost effectiveness to show a reduction in new diabetes cases. Now, we haven't modeled that specifically. We've looked at, you know, the sequelae of diabetes can be pretty complicated in terms of disease course and costs. But we do know that with increasing fatty liver disease severity, increasing inflammation, is associated with greater incidence of the sequelae of diabetes. That would greatly help in showing cost effectiveness for any intervention. I think that's a great note on which to end this portion of this episode. And now back to Roger. This conversation is sponsored by Resoundant, a Mayo Clinic company and the developers of MRLSography. MRE is widely available with over 2,000 locations worldwide and can be done as a low-cost rapid exam in just five minutes. Together with MRI-PDFF, this quantitative exam is called an hepatogram, a powerful non-invasive alternative to liver biopsy in many cases. For more information, visit www.resoundant.com on the web. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We'll be back next week for a stimulating discussion on advances and implications of single-cell genomics with Professor Scott Friedman and Neil Henderson. Until then, stay safe, surf on, and we'll see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now.